Hello, this is the third episode in a series called Don't Forget About Us by Gloria and Cherell. In this episode, Gloria is joined by Julia, who together shed light on the situation that faces many migrants who are still stuck in Calais. They are joined by two representatives from Collective Aid Calais and will table an open discussion on what the situation is at large and how it affects the people who are there. We hope you enjoy, and without further delay, hello. You're listening to the Mastery Diplomat. Hello, lovely people, and welcome back to our podcast. Don't forget about us. This is Gloria, and today we're going to talk about people on the move in Calais. We're very lucky as for this episode we had the chance to interview two representatives from Collective Aid, an NGO supporting people on the move, directly on the ground in Calais. Unfortunately, Cheryl isn't here, she abandoned me to go back home for a bit, but my friend Julia agreed to participate in this episode and lead the interview with me. And I'm sure she will be a very valuable contribution as she has been working in Calais for one year between 2019 and 2020, And I'm sure she can provide a better and deeper understanding on the situation, which will hopefully help throughout. Thanks so much for that introduction, Gloria. I will certainly do my best. Thank you for being here and for agreeing to do this. Um, So Jules, from what I could see in our research and so on, the situation in Calais is difficult for a number of different reasons. And violation of human rights seems to be one of the most pressing concerns in the city. Yes, absolutely. I think the situation for people on the move in in Calais and Dunkirk and in northern France is particularly fraught because their position in the cities is insecure. So there's no official place for people on the move to stay. There's no official refugee camp. There there had been one known as the jungle, the big jungle, which was dismantled in 2016. And since then, there are still people in northern France, but they don't have anywhere specific to go. So people are typically sleeping in very insecure conditions. Often they're very lucky to have a tent and you, you might find people sleeping in, in various locations across this, the cities. So this population is, is transient, as the majority of people's aim is to cross to the UK. So these people who are wishing to cross, the only support they have are from a small network of NGOs, organisations who, who, who are there to support, but they are n- not funded by the government. So because of uh, this lack of infrastructural support, this population is, is sleeping rough at various locations. Often people are lucky if they have a tent. And so if, if you were to walk around or drive around the city of Calais or around Dunkirk, you might see kind of a small communities of, of tents and tarps kind of assembled in, in different parts of the city. And those places that communities are choosing to sleep in are, are, are constantly changing, certainly in the year that I was there. The, there was kind of a lot of moving around because the authorities are, are constantly chasing them and trying to deter them from, from staying within the confines of the city. Um, so because of this transience, the, this population has a very limited access to healthcare, food, water, and charge for their phones, which is also very important. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and above all else, they are facing very extreme police brutality. 
Yeah, and I think that's what strikes me the most. I mean, Calais is sort of a microcosm of the migration crisis that has been going on in Europe for a really long time now. And the numbers, they're difficult to estimate, first of all, as Julia said, it's, it's a transient population. But also the numbers compared to other realities are not that high. So it's comparatively a small population that the, the population in Calais tends to hover around 1500 people, which compared to other realities, again, it's not that much. But the condition they live in, specifically the abuse of human rights and the continuously perpetrated police brutality is higher, is much higher than in many other places. And that mostly has to do with the fact that, as Julia said, it is a point of crossing, it is a border point where people are for a period to then redirect towards other shores, so to say. I wouldn't want to imply that the situation in, in northern France and Calais and Dunkirk is any worse than others, because I think it's important to acknowledge that violence at borders is happening you know, across the EU and indeed in, uh, outside of the EU. But I think in, in Calais, it is certainly unique. So I suppose the situation that we described before, where people live in an insecure way, they do not have any one space where they are you know, allowed to be, so to say, there, there's no, there's no safety there, and, and there's police evictions every forty eight hours, which is designed such that the people cannot develop any further rights to stay where they are, which can facilitate making spaces inaccessible. Um, and and that is happening increasingly over the year that I was there. A big eviction would take place, and then thereafter, you would see an operation taking place to fence off that area so that people can't go back. And that is why people are constantly moving around the city in that way. So I think one of the most striking things that, that, that you see when you're walking around the, the city of Calais is fences. You just see these big white metal fences everywhere, particularly around the ferry port. There's one that's Oh, I, I'm not very good at measurements, but it's easily 50 feet high, if, if not higher. And they're, of course, all covered with uh, barbed wire at the top. That's really tough and it must be a very hostile environment which of course has a toll on also the mental health of, of people on the move in Calais considering that, as I said before, being one of the last points, so to say, of the journey, they must have undergone an immense amount of stress and trauma and difficulties and in that they're not helped but they're almost antagonised. Absolutely. I think the mental and physical violence that, that people in Calais and Dunkirk are experiencing is, I don't like to use cliches, but insult to injury. Because as, you've, as you said, they've already been through a very long journey, sometimes spanning years to get yeah. to this point. Yes, and what we particularly wanted to discuss, also we, we're going to digress about it later with Collective Aid as well, is the immense lack of coverage in the media of the situation itself from the point of view of the people on the move. Uh, so from the point of view of the people that have to endure these extreme circumstances. And there is also a lack of media representation of the situation. And whatever media coverage it has attracted is always one-sided and quite misrepresents the situation of people on the move in Calais. Absolutely. I, I think what media coverage there is on the situation polarises things to the point where it's an us versus them. And I mean, it's dehumanising. It doesn't, it doesn't take into account any nuance and it's very much filtered through one political perspective that people may or may not agree with. 
Yes, it's almost as if the people that need help are the one that we have to be protected from, which is a portrayal that it's quite inhuman and sad and says a lot about our society as a whole I suppose this sort of attributed meaning making that's more social this is also why we decided not to use the term migrants or refugees first of all because the people in Calais are people on the move but also because there is a sort of negative connotation constantly attributed around the terms migrant and refugees not given by the meaning of the word itself but by the social meaning making and construction of meaning that there is around these terms that represent the people in quite derogatory terms and negative light. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. The terms migrant and refugee are charged with very negative connotations. And I mean, I think it is important to reclaim those terms as neutral. But for this episode, we've decided to use the, the term people on the move, particularly because these are people on the move they're and they, they, they're people and they also don't have a legal status yet. Yes, absolutely. And this is also something that we're going to talk about with our guest. Also, a little disclaimer about the sound. Our guests are actually working. We're talking to Fanny and Lucy. They are based in the Collective Aid warehouse in Calais. So while we listen to them explain the situation, you can probably also hear volunteers shouting at each other <laughs> in, in yes. what is quite quite a big open space and maybe shifting boxes around and getting their warehouse work done. So we're talking to people who are constantly working to support people on the move and who are talking to us directly from an action ground. So today we're here with Lucy, the distribution coordinator at Collective Aid in Calais, and Fanny, a volunteer who's been there for about three months. Thank you very much for being here. So let's start with a very general question. What is the situation in Calais like? From your point of view, can you tell us a bit more about the people on the move in Calais? So, yeah, since, um, I mean, I think a lot of people are aware of the uh, big jungle that was dismantled in 2016. And a lot of the people we serve, people on the move, uh, moved to a much smaller site, which was referred to as RDV. And there are about 600 people living there for about until the end of July 2020. But there was a big, big eviction at that point. Tear gas was used and many people were taken away on buses and it was like quite a, quite a long distance and it was very difficult for them to get back. Some tried to resettle at the time, but eventually everyone was forced to move away from that site as well. Since then, several sites around Calais have grown and developed into kind of distinct communities, but they are all regularly evicted by police and all the communities across Calais face discrimination and police brutality regularly. And even besides that, people live outside. Many are trying to reach the UK daily and they're returning to minimal or outdoor shelters, either tents or built from tarps or whatever is available. And they come back with often wet clothes and shoes. So, yeah, it's, um, it's not an easy situation for anyone. It's basically people living in overcrowded camps where they have to stay in the hope of being able to cross someday and they're sleeping on the ground in the rain, in the cold, in the winter, uh, in the wind sometimes because wind can get really hot too, close to the sea. And basically it's just everyone else in Calais choosing to turn a blind eye and act as if they weren't there because it makes it more easier. Clearly, it's a very 
bleak and sad situation for, for many of them. Can I ask you a bit more about the demographic of the people on the move in Calais? What is their age, gender, if it plays a role into it? Uh, where are they from mostly and so forth? So there are people from lots of different countries. We meet people from all over, but most come from Northern and Eastern Africa, particularly from Sudan and Eritrea, and also from Afghanistan, Iraq and Iran. Many flee conflict and persecutions and oppressive regimes. And also in Dunkirk, there's a Vietnamese community and many of the people there are victims of trafficking and promised work in the UK to pay off debts at home, which is missold to them on a horrible level because they're promised this brilliant new life and actually they end up stuck in that situation as well. And what about gender? Does it play some some kind of role? What What is the composition gender-wise? So people we meet in Calais are mostly young men, usually in their 20s. But we also see a lot of women, uh, mostly young too. And there are lots of families and children and unaccompanied minors. Yeah, we do see and we do serve predominantly young men in their 20s. According to UNHCR, about half of displaced people, people on the move, are women and girls but it's more the case in Calais that we meet young men in their 20s because this is towards the end of a very long and difficult journey and many more men many more young men are more prepared to take the risks required to make it here so while a really upsetting number of women and children do also make that journey the majority of people that make it this far are our young men so that's why our association is focused on serving them thanks for giving us some background on that i suppose the next thing we'd be wondering is whether you could tell us a little bit more about their legal status in in france so only once uh, a person on the move who's arrived in calais has claimed asylum in france do they have officially refugee status so while the people we serve do have the right to claim asylum in France they're not given the freedom of a legal route to the UK or across borders into France in the first place uh, which means that it's made very difficult to do anything to get here it's impossible to work it's impossible to claim any sort of benefit the the state do provide a food service but mostly the interactions with the state or with the police and with evictions and it's also a very unfair situation where nobody is allowed to choose where they claim asylum i'm sure that you guys have discussed dublin three regulations but uh, people can be deported simply because they've been in another in another country first where they could have claimed asylum and this is assuming that every eu country is going to treat refugees the same and it's not the case and even if it were the case it's still completely fair and reasonable to want to go to the UK. People might want to choose to go to the UK just because that's their personal choice but there might also be the fact that they want to use English, they might not have other languages that they can speak and it would obviously be preferable to settle in a place where you can use your language skills and lots of people have family connections and friends in the UK so it's it's so unfair that people don't have that freedom of choice and the choice of a legal route. 
I completely agree with that and and I, I, I think anyone who's ever tried to settle down somewhere new where they don't know anybody can, can understand how, how difficult it is to establish a whole new life with no family network, with no friend network, with no roots established. So you're making lots of sense. Thank you for explaining that. I absolutely agree with Julia. And also feeding a bit on what you said before and what Julia asked, what's the situation like for unaccompanied minors? Does it change for them legally? Always talking about legal status, does it change for them? Or are there any measures in place to protect them or help them? Or what is it like? There is an association called Refugee Youth Service and they meet minors and they try and keep in touch with them and make sure that they're able to access essentials and also that when they access essentials they're not exploited by adults because there's such a high need for material items in Calais it's possible that if an unaccompanied minor is seen to be able to get access to something more easily than they will be exploited so it's an amazing job that RYS do making sure that that's not well at least mitigating that risk for for the unaccompanied minors in Kelly. what i know is just that they can get easier but it's still very difficult for them to get access to housing situation because there is a number that they can call but you'd probably have to speak french to be able to call them and every day there is a place in Kelly where they can get in buses that will get them to housing and then they'll be back in the morning so that they have some place to leave but it's not like a lot broadcasted so people don't really know about that and also uh, they're going to a place that they don't really know don't know how they're going to come back to Kelly and be separated from their friends so not a lot of people choose to access that service. Also to add to that a lot of the time people will minors and adults will even if there is an opportunity for a shelter, they would prefer to be able to have their own shelter in Calais so that they can try and cross. And that's because that's that's the goal. So it's when that's offered instead of a tent, which are taken so often by the police or even tarps, if, if it's a choice between state-offered shelter or your own shelter, near to where you can try and cross your own shelter is going to be preferable because that's that's the aim to try and cross the channel and and just to add to that from personal experience i i know i have made calls on behalf of minors before and their the shelters are often overcrowded and there isn't space for them so as as you guys have have very well explained this is a a situation riddled with problems. Um, so I suppose leading to the next question, which is to ask, and I mean, you've referred to this in, in passing, but interested to hear a little bit more about, about the kind of risks that the, the people in Calais are facing. So people that are here in Calais, they are here without papers. So that means that they could get expelled at any time if they get arrested they need to prove that they are here for a valid reason and what the state sees as a valid reason is very complicated and if they cannot prove that they have good reason to be here they can be sent back they're also facing daily risk because they are exposed to some tensions due to the very inhuman conditions they're living in they're facing huge danger from the police 
which is very violent towards people in the movie, especially here in Calais. The police presence is way higher than it is in the rest of France. And the police is doing eviction sometimes every day, certain sites and otherwise every like 48 hours. They're arresting people every day. They're tear gassing people. They use a lot of brutality. And of course, then you had the danger that is linked to the living conditions of the people. That means they're sleeping in the rain, outside, in the cold, on the ground. And they don't have the same healthcare access as we do. So that means that if they get sick, well, they cannot access healthcare and like get a doctor as easily as we can. And also, obviously, crossing and even getting to Calais is a very long journey. It is hard and crossing is not easy. It is risky and it's important to keep in mind that not everyone can make it safely to the other side of the sea. Yes, I do imagine that those are very heavy concerns in a way that has to do with health food insecurity and aside from those there's a an obvious physical threat that you have referred to i've also heard of as a result of police brutality as well people have died as an indirect consequence of that well for sure those are very important points to talk about specifically in terms of the risk that they face and Mm -hmm. the hardship they are forced to live under But in this, has COVID impacted? I imagine that it has, as it has everybody else. But how has COVID impacted the situation for people on the move in Calais? So at the moment, the lower access to healthcare is obviously a a massive problem. And there's not yet access to the vaccine for the people we serve in Calais. There is limited access to showers and hygiene facilities. So... That is obviously a big problem in terms of being able to avoid transmitting COVID if you're living in these conditions. We've adapted our services in order to try and protect the communities we serve from us potentially transmitting it, uh, particularly because we go to multiple different sites. And we're very careful to clean everything that we take and we provide masks. Uh, We try and hand them out down the line when people are waiting for our services, because that is the first sort of potential protection. But yet what's offered in terms of helping people on the move in Calais avoids COVID or be treated for COVID is it's so unbalanced also have to add that lockdown and curfew in France also came with an increase of police brutality because there are less people outside and it puts people in more dangerous condition because less witnesses Mm. and it's easier for the police to do whatever they want to do when no one is actually here to see what they're doing. It's, it's just another excuse to control people because yeah. if everyone on the street has to have an attestation or some sort of paper to be going somewhere, then it's an excuse to stop people and they didn't actually need more. They, they have enough powers in Calais to stop people and control them and check their papers. There was enough of that already and with COVID added, as Fanny says, it's been massively increased. So thankfully, there are options for a lot of things and it's not ideal, but lots of organisations have adapted really well to 
meet the needs of doing things outside. Well, I do see that it it has been hard for services and operation to go back as normal. And I imagine for you too, as an organisation that works on the ground, it has been quite hard to deal with the pandemic as well. But as such, for our listeners, can you tell us a bit more about what you do, what Collective Aid does? So... Initially, Collective Aid was established in early 2017, originally under the name Belgrade, as in Belgrade Aid, and it was founded in response to the changing needs of refugees in Serbia, refugees and migrants in Serbia, I should say. And so because the Balkan route for people on the move became more and more difficult with the closing of the Hungarian border in 2015 and a general rise in tension related to the unfolding refugee crisis. Circumstances changed quite quickly around that time. In March 2016, the borders of Slovenia, Macedonia and Croatia also closed, so marking the official end of the, the Balkan route, as it was called, and therefore causing thousands of people to become stuck in other countries. So that's sort of the roots of collective aids in the Balkans. And so in the sites in the Balkans, we have the WASH projects and also NFI non-food items that we distribute. Here in Calais, we took over the main NFI distribution project, which was previously by Help Refugees in late 2019. And we've been doing that since. So it's clothes and bedding and hygiene items and we do static distributions, which means we appear at the site at a certain time with a van full of things, and we give the guys the guys is what we generally how we generally refer to the people we serve because they are mostly young yeah. men. <laughs> so, and the guys will wait, and they'll have the choice within what's possible with our stocks, and we'll give people a choice to have and to have the chance to get whatever it is that they might wish to get from us. Maybe you could give us a little bit of an idea of, of what kind of things you, you would usually give out to the guys. So what we do is when we show up, we have catalogs that change during the week. And we distribute t-shirts or jumpers, trousers, jackets or shorts, for example. We distribute masks. We have hygiene packs, blankets. So yeah, for the bulk of our distributions, I think that's pretty much everything so all through winter from well actually longer than winter from October through to May we distribute tents and this is because these are the months where there's a greater risk of hypothermia sleeping outside at night in the summer this is unsustainable because of the increased population and because of the number of evictions we give out a tent it's the same in the winter but we give out a tent and within a few days there's a good chance that the police have taken it or destroyed it so we need ridiculous numbers of tents we gave out definitely over 3,000 over the winter months and if we'd had more stock then we, we could have given out more which is why it's really important that because it's so dangerous to be sleeping outside without a tent in the winter all through summer we're campaigning to get enough money to buy at least 5,000 is our hope so that we can help more with evictions in Calais and Dunkirk and also give out tents as much as possible where people have had them taken or have arrived for the first time without a tent. I can't imagine a more important thing to raise money for 
And it, it, it's such a shame that you can't give them in, in summer as well. But from your explanation, it sounds like that that was a very difficult decision to make. And you, you refer to as the population. So we've done a bit of research, of course, and we saw that numbers vary greatly, depending on different platforms and different reporters. So some talks about, uh, I'd say, 6,000 to 8,000. Some talk about a much more little number than that. So do you have any idea roughly of how many people are actually between Calais and Dunkirk, of course, but roughly how many are there? Our best estimates come from people serving food because the way our distributions work means that we couldn't possibly see everyone in any given site. But estimates from RCK, Refugee Community Kitchen, they see at least a thousand people a day in Calais. So, I mean, that's the minimum. And then in Dunkirk, there are at least 600 people living in the main camp. So, of course, I I understand what you mean. It it might be quite hard to evaluate and estimate when people are, as we say, on the move. And and as you brilliantly put it, they they have a questionable legal assistance and status. And it's hard to to make an exact estimate, but just to give our listeners an, an idea, I think it was important to quantify it in a way. But so what you talked about your work in assisting so many people, how do you feel your work is perceived on the ground, both from the local government and from the people you assist or the guys, as you call them? Yeah, especially with the pandemic, we're kind of isolated from Cali locals, but we are working to allow volunteers to help sourcing donations for instance in our warehouse because we want to make connections with local community and try and be more connected with the local community. The press on the situation in Calais is often in favour of the police and tends to report more on relatively rare clashes with the police compared to the regular evictions and brutalities towards people on the move. There have been instances where locals have complained about distributions but we do also meet the occasional person that's always really gratifying when somebody turns up out of the blue with a donation who's a local person in Calais or says that they support what we do but generally speaking we hear more about being resented that we're helping people stay here and also about the way it's portrayed in terms of the police trying to keep control as opposed to controlling people that really just needs to be given an opportunity to a legal route and a safe place to stay. I'd say that locally the state and the police it sometimes feel like they're working kind of against us as organizations it's not especially for collective aid but for other organization for example hro human rights observers besides the police in their everyday interactions with us we've had distribution spots in the past that have then had no parking signs put there the state will put rocks where they know that we park to distribute they've put like bike racks under many of the bridges where people on the move were sleeping and one of the most sheltered spots especially in winter making it really difficult to find somewhere to sleep there was a very prominent site for setting up tents under the shelter of an out-of-use building called Comfarama and they they completely covered it in huge boulders it's such a senseless operation because those people just have to move somewhere else in Calais. And it's these are resources that could be put into actually giving some sort of aid or legal route or changing the way that 
the whole situation is dealt with. Instead, they put rocks where people are sleeping. It's senseless. Also that in Coquel, which is a place close to Calais, what they did is that there was kind of a small hood, like forests, where people would just sleep under trees, like established shelters. What the city did is that they got rid of all the trees they cut them all so that people could not stay there anymore. So they're also using money to destroy the environment just so that people would not be able to sleep there anymore. You made a really interesting point about how the state really seems to be mobilizing Calais infrastructure against the people who, who are trying to, to sleep there. It's a real shame and it's, it's a great example of the different ways that authority can pit itself against vulnerable people. You mentioned uh, human rights observers, HRO, in passing. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about HRO and indeed maybe some of the other organizations that you work alongside in Calais. It's a French organization that was created after the dismantling of the jungle in 2017. And they're acting as a observation organization and they're collecting data, making analysis on how the French state treats people and respect their human rights, especially for people in the move in Calais and Dunkirk. We do work a lot in collaboration with them. We do HRO shift in the morning. That means that we help HRO on shift when they're like covering evictions. So we go on covering the ground, taking videos, trying to collect data on what is taken, how people were treated. It's such a strange situation to be on an HRO shift where we, in order to observe the full movements of the police and see that everything that they do is observed and recorded and known to the public, what it ends up being is a strange formality a load uh, i'd say usually 10 15 gendarmes armed with massive armored vests and stuff like that all march up to a group of tents they count them they photograph us photographing them and then they walk away and it's this huge operation every other day and it's just to maintain this hostile environment and then we also collaborate with hro on what we call resource shift which is, uh, there is a place in Calais where uh, when the police takes everything, they have to put it in the resourcery. So what HRO is doing, and we're very happy to help them with that, is that we can help people sometimes get their stuff back. It's also, it makes me very angry every time I go to the resourcery because sometimes we get to see whatever is going to the trash when people cannot get it back. And it's such a waste. It's like tons of blankets, tents, clothes and stuff. And sometimes it's really hard to see things that you've mean sorted yourself. It seems like a very hard situation. It's also very commendable that you contribute to the effort of human rights observers, also, also because it seems that you try to do your best to help people that are already in a condition of extreme vulnerability and undergoing a lot of struggle and repression, it seems. And at the same time, there is a lot that works against what you do and what your efforts are in that they take 
the tents or the blankets that you managed to collect and so forth. But in this, as you said before, this kind of operations of the gendarmerie, as you said before, the notoriously portrayed as they trying to protect against. And in that, there is a huge misrepresentation in the media. I, we did see that Calais is not as portrayed internationally as many other realities that have the same situation. But at the same time, when it is, it's often in terms of they using this sort of collective way to address to people on the move that dehumanizes them and makes them, in a way, a very far off reality. And in that, do you think that from your point of view and, and your operations on the ground, do you think that this misrepresentation and lack of media coverage at the same time influences the situation in your work on the ground. I can talk about the French media quite a lot, but what happens in France is that every time Calais is mentioned in politics or in the media, it's never in a good way. People have such a bad comprehension and understanding of what Calais is like. And it's spreading across the media. I can speak for myself. Basically, I had no idea what it would be like. Well, actually, I had an idea, but it was a really false one. It was absolutely not true because the way it's portrayed in the media doesn't have anything to do with the reality of the thing. The medias are never showing the facts and what it's like for people on the move living in Calais. They're always supporting the state and the police they're never talking about evictions and tear gas every time well it doesn't even happen a lot but if one day a police officer is injured during an eviction or anything you can be sure that you're going to hear about that on the news but they're never talking about how they use tear gas grenades and how they use brutality against people We can actually speak about that. Uh, after evictions, we do see a lot of injured people. And also it's impunity around the police because they know that they can kind of do whatever they want. It's not going to be in the media. You're not going to hear about it. And that's what HRO is for. That kind of leads to my following question, which is, would you say in this sense then that a better media coverage would help? Both the people and you working on the ground. Something that happened to us and that is a relevant example is that we went to a protest to stop an eviction and a lot of organizations from Calais went to the site to sit down there and make sure the eviction doesn't happen and there were journalists there and the police showed up. They had the right to do their evictions and as soon as they saw that there was media coverage and journalists there they left and the eviction did not happen because it would have been on tv and this is not what they want so in that case it would clearly help yeah and from the other side of the channel the rhetoric around the border and people trying to get across the media coverage is so often focused on how people are trying to get into our country and it's this really defensive and unhumanitarian rhetoric of defending our borders and 
Priti Patel's new plan for immigration is just the most recent part of that horrible saga. And it makes it so difficult to campaign for fundraising and donations for the border because we're a British-speaking organisation. We've got or we've had a lot of volunteers for, from the UK, even though more recently with Brexit and COVID, that's been more difficult. But still, our main fundraising base is the UK. We have lots of supporting groups who give us medium grants to buy NFI in the UK and for material donations there's a network of groups in the UK who gather donations and while we do have a developing and we're we're always trying to grow our support network across the EU the media coverage in the UK is one of the contributing factors as far as we understand to one of our biggest donors pulling funding for at the end of the year because it's impossible for them to sustain with the way that the borders are portrayed basically so the way the media represents Calais is a big factor in making it much more difficult now to fundraise for everything we do. And I just wanted to add that I think we all have the feeling that if everyone in Europe knew what is actually going on here, we would get all the help we need because it is very hard for anyone to imagine their country actually violating human rights, but it is happening. And we are not asking for too much. We're just asking for people to actually acknowledge the fact that even in France, which is a human rights country, this is how we call ourselves, we are on a daily basis accepting and allowing the state to act as if people were not humans and every time you hear about Calais in the media it always goes with insecurity danger how people there feel threatened and it's never people queuing outside in the rain living outside in the rain having to wait hours to get their food or tents any items that they could use to leave and the UK government is also funding the police effort to maintain this hostile environment and it's relentless it would be relentless if people lived here and they had to and they were forced to queue up for a essentials that would be terrible as it is it's that plus everything they get is then at risk of being taken again by the police within a few days well thank you for for explaining so well the reach that the inadequate media coverage has and I wouldn't have expected it would really have such an impact on your funding and and the way collective aid works I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you fundraise for your projects and, and you've you've mentioned all of the different things that you're giving out, you're distributing on a daily basis in, in Calais and Dunkirk. Where do you get all of this from? So there are various different methods we get the NFI non-food items that we distribute. We use crowdfunding and social media to get money donations from grassroots supporters and we also have support supporting groups who give us small and medium grants to buy NFI. For material donations like actual clothes or blankets or anything, we rely on a combination of individual donations as well as a network of supporting groups, uh, as I mentioned, particularly in the UK, but also across Europe and particularly now in Germany and neighbouring countries. Considering the issues caused by Brexit with importing goods and donations, we're really focusing on building up that network. But besides material donations, we use the financial donations to source necessary items in bulk, stuff like hygiene items and 
underwear obviously have to be new and other items we need to buy in bulk because we've got a very high demand to meet and we are very careful about the quality and suitability of the items we give out. Uh, we wouldn't want to hand out an item that had a potentially triggering slogan or definitely nothing with camouflage pattern on it or something damaged or dirty would be absolutely out of the question because we consider the items we give to be a reflection on how we think of the people we serve. We really aim to preserve their dignity as much as possible, given the situation they're in. Like if you're having to queue up to get these essential items, often in unpleasant weather conditions, the least we can do is make sure that what we hand out is something decent. So we're very careful about all that. The point is sometimes buying things is necessary that's that's very important as you mentioned is you know you rely a lot on private funding as well as social media and donations but at the same time there is a need for brand new items that wouldn't be ethical to hand out used so in tapping also on what fanny said before about just needing people to acknowledge what's going on and being able to talk about it in different terms and from the perspective of the actual people that need help and are not there to harm or injure anybody how would you say that our listeners can help and hopefully make a little bit of a difference through collective aid so i invite anyone who wants to help and that has a little bit of money to put it in the fundraiser so that we can fundraise tents for next winter to help people not sleeping outside in the cold and that have kind of like a small roof it's not a lot but it changes a lot and with seven to eight euros you can already help someone get a tent if you have men's clothes anything that is like bedding related blanket sleeping bags anything you can always try to donate it and send it to us also if you're interested in seeing how kelly is really like and helping on the ground we are really happy to welcome any new volunteer that would like to join us also if you want to get regular updates about what's going on in calais if you could follow us on instagram at collective aids org is the instagram and our discontent fundraiser page if you just search collective aid discontent and more about that for people that cannot join or cannot donate it is already a big help just to join us in spreading the truth talking to people about what it's really like help people understand the situation better and you can sign petitions you can share information join us on social medias anything any help is very welcome wonderful because i do think that often especially students that are on a limited budget as we all know struggle to understand how simply they could help make a difference so I, I think that talking also about non-monetary ways of helping like volunteering following you on social medias and just try to change a bit the discourse around what's going on in Calais it's really important and that is the positive note we want to end this episode on hoping that it will get to our listeners absolutely Please do not underestimate the power that four or five unused sleeping bags in your basement has. And we thank you so, so much, Lucy and Fanny, for being here today with us and for talking us through what's going on and what you do on a daily basis on the ground. Thank you very, very much. Thanks so much for Thanks inviting so us. Yeah. Thanks, guys, for what you're doing. You guys obviously do incredibly important work. And so thank you. 
All right, lovely people, that was the end of our third episode. Thank you so much for listening and for your continued support. We hope you learned something. We hope it was interesting and we hope it really motivates you to keep talking about it and to bring it into public discussion. Thank you so much to Julia for being here with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me on. And as usual, all the links to Collective Aid's website, social media, will be on our website and on the description as well as the contact email they mentioned for potential volunteers if you're interested in volunteering with them uh, please do they really need it yes in fact i think the team is particularly small at the moment so if anybody happens to be at a loose end uh, i think your help could be used and as usual don't forget about people on the move in calais thank you for listening to the mastery tip this episode was produced by Gloria, Sherelle, and Julia. The editor was Brendan. The music in this episode is by Stone Ocean. This podcast is brought to you by the students of Union Merit, the United Nations University here in Maastricht. Thank you to Collective Aid Calais for participating in this episode. Find links to their pages in the description. Be sure to follow us on Spotify or whatever platform you're using. And we'd be happy if you shoot us a message on Instagram telling us what you think. Thanks again for listening. And hoi hoi!